Today's sermon continues in the first chapter of Mark's Gospel. So if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 707. In this first chapter so far, we've seen that Jesus is entering onto the stage of history. After his baptism and temptation, he's called a few disciples, and now we begin to really see him begin his public ministry in the town of Capernaum. And one of my goals personally, and one of my goals for us as a congregation in this series in Mark's Gospel, as when I have opportunity to preach, is, to, is for us to encounter Jesus again in a fresh way, for us to see in Mark's narrative who he is and what that means for us and for life. So whether we've grown up in the church and heard these stories all of our lives, or whether we're still not sure who Jesus is, we're just seeking to know him, we're reading some of these things for the first time and trying to understand them, no matter where we are, my prayer is that we would see him clearly as we read what Mark has written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark's purpose in writing is to announce us, introduce us, to Jesus the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah who's come for his people. And one way that we could divide up actually the whole book of Mark is to say that the first really half of it is to see that this is the presentation of the Messiah, that this is Jesus, this is who he is, this is what he did. And the second half of it is kind of the, the, the turning point is as Jesus is tested. We see the testing of the Messiah, we see him bear up under that testing, going all the way to the cross for his people and coming out uh, of the empty tomb uh, with resurrected glory and power. So that's the, so we're seeing this, we're at the very beginning here, seeing this presentation. Mark is saying, this is who Jesus is. Um, let, me, let me have your attention, Mark is saying, as, as we encounter uh, this story. So re- we'll read in Mark uh, 1, starting in verse 21. They went to Capernaum, And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Jesus is being introduced to us here. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, have you ever made a bad first impression? Made such a bad first impression that no matter what you did later on, you never felt like you could quite overcome it. You felt like based on the first impression of, of your first encounter with this person, that there was really no way that you were going to be friends. I can think of people that I felt like I always did the wrong thing even from the beginning, not intentionally, uh, or not even, you know, just misunderstandings or just jokes that flopped or just some kind of, some kind of thing that happened. 
in the midst of the conversation at the very beginning, which clouded the future relationship with that person right from the start. Aaron's first impression of me was less than overwhelmingly positive. (laughs) I hope that I've pulled that one out a little bit over the years. But um, we don't have to talk about that now. (laughs) But I think there is power in a first impression, right? What is it? People in sales can speak of how important it is to make a good first impression. And and one of my uncles was a very experienced and very successful salesman. He would say that within the first few words, as you walk in a boardroom to make a sales presentation, he had a a sense of whether or not he was going to be able to make a sale or not. Like he had, he had an intuition about it, but he also just had uh, this ability to make a good first impression and this ability to, to, to uh, connect to a group of people in order to make a sale. In this account, Jesus is making a first impression. He's making an amazing first impression on the people of Capernaum. And Mark wants us to see Jesus' authority on display particularly in these early chapters. As he's presenting Jesus to us, he's saying, look at what kind of authority he has. Look at what he can do that no one else can do. So this morning and next Sunday, we'll look particularly at how in this first chapter, we see Jesus is showing his authority. He's showing his power by the supernatural things that he does, which then validates his message and tells us that his words are true. The setting here of the story is that Jesus has just invited a number of men to follow him as disciples. They were from a nearby town of Bethsaida, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's just a few miles east of Capernaum. Capernaum was also along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It was a village, a fishing village, but it was also along the uh, a, a trade route. And so there was, for a village of its size, which wasn't Uh, particularly large or impressive as a city, it was somewhat wealthy and it was somewhat prosperous at the time of Jesus. Um, Verse 21 tells us the story. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. If you visit Capernaum today, you can see the ruins of a beautiful and expensive synagogue that dates from the 4th century. It was built of white limestone, which was not native to that area and had to be imported in, so at significant cost. And the actual stones that are there in that area are mostly black uh, basalt. And so this synagogue that was built in the 300s would have, been, would have stood out um, impressively as this white limestone building in the midst of all of these other black stone buildings. It would have been uh, really impressive there in those, from the 300s forward. Interestingly, as archaeologists have have excavated the site, that they found that beneath that synagogue, the white limestone impressive one, there is another floor of black basalt, basalt, or however you say it, that kind of rock, that that is the evidence of of the first synagogue, of this synagogue that Jesus spoke in and where these events actually took place. Just a bit of background on the practice of the synagogue. Of course, the main place for worship in the Old Testament was the temple in Jerusalem. Since the time of Solomon, around uh, 1,950 B.C., uh, until the conquest and and when it was destroyed in 587, and then when it was rebuilt around 515 B.C. So whenever there was a, a temple in Jerusalem, that was the main place for worship. 
That's where the priests offered the sacrifices. That's where everyone went for the, for the Passover and all of the holy days. That was um, the place where those, the priests and the Levites, only there was where they did those kinds of sacrifices. Only there was where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was. It wasn't moved anywhere else. That's where God said he would meet with his people. But in the centuries leading up to Jesus' arrival on earth, the Jewish people in Israel, and actually throughout the whole Mediterranean, began to build synagogues. They were gathering places for them to receive instruction in the law and for them to worship on the Sabbath. So there's a different kind of worship happening in the synagogue, of course, is what happened in the temple. But in the synagogues, the law was read aloud. There were scribes that were there who could read and teach and write. Uh, But also lay people had an important job. As, as part of the worship service, that they were given this opportunity to stand up and expound and teach from the law. And so that's what's going on here. Jesus stands up as, you know, in a, in a normal kind of way, and he begins to speak and he begins to teach. But it's not, of course, a normal Sabbath day that's happening here. And we'll get to that in just a minute. One more thing to mention, as we read Mark's gospel, we'll find that in the synagogues are places where opposition to Jesus actually gathers. It seems sort of counterintuitive. These are the places that they built so that they would learn God's law and so that they would teach it. But actually, as Jesus goes into synagogue after synagogue, that's where he finds people who oppose him. And that's where the religious leaders uh, take issue with what he does. And even in this story, within the synagogue, there's an evil spirit in a man who is, who is uh, oppressing him. So, Uh, That's something that that we'll notice as well as we go along. Verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Mark begins with a response to the people to Jesus' teaching, but he doesn't begin with the actual content of what Jesus says. We don't get the text of the speech. The only thing that Jesus so far has taught publicly is this idea that the kingdom of God is at hand and that he's calling people to repent and believe the gospel. So we don't know exactly what Jesus was saying, what he was teaching on, what they were reading that morning, but Jesus is making a great first impression. And perhaps partly the people are impressed with the content of what he's saying, but what's striking the assembly more, I think, is the issue of authority. Jesus is teaching on his own authority. The tradition in that day was that rabbis would teach what their rabbi had taught them. And so there was this idea that you propagate your sort of school of thought, that you uh, pass down uh, the opinions of others. You didn't stand on your own authority. You had to root yourself and your teaching in another authority, uh, in your teacher, in your rabbi, in your school, in the great rabbis of the time. And so, uh, and that's, of course, a tradition that we see in lots of different places. In medieval Islam, there arose a great body of literature that was written some 100, 150, 200 years after the beginning of Islam and the traditional date for the life of Muhammad. Much of this literature is called hadith. It's the Arabic word that just means conversation or, or talk. Uh, but these hadith are full of stories of the life of the prophet. And some are full of sort of miraculous and legendary kind of tales. And some may have preserved an early tradition that was passed down orally. Uh, It's really difficult for Islamic scholars to know. And so they have this sort of painstaking process that that they've done throughout the centuries to sort through these hadith and kind of assign authority to some of them 
and, uh, and, and say that these are, more, um, these are more legitimate than others, but of course there's controversy among them about how exactly to do that. And the point is that these stories were important to the community in order to give it a sense of legitimacy of its practice. If Muhammad did these things, then we should do them. And sort of more, you know, cynically, maybe from our perspective, if many of these are written much later, they're sort of projected backwards, right? So we need to justify what we're doing in the present, and so we need to root that in a historical tradition or, in, you know, in a tradition that goes back to the prophets so that we can have a sense of, of the right for us to do these kinds of rituals and these kinds of religious practices have to be rooted backwards. And so you, you see what I'm saying. Authority was derived by, where you, by who you quote, uh, by, not by the speaker themselves. So Jesus is doing things very differently. In verse 27, again, the people remark about his authority, and they say it's a, it's a new teaching. And the idea is not that this is new in the sense of brand new or novel or never have been heard before. Rather, the idea is the sense of new in the sense of a different kind, a different type of teaching. Jesus has, is saying things, and the way that he's doing it is categorically different than the traditional Israelite practice of the day. And all of this goes back to this idea of authority. And so we need to, to spend a minute here to consider what this word actually means. The people say it with surprise and enthusiasm. He teaches with authority. And the word used by Mark, the Greek word is exousia, which is an important Greek word in the world of the day. It's used in a number of different ways, not to describe power, but not really just raw power, not just strength. It means the power to decide, uh, the power, to, the authority to uh, control or to organize. Kings have this kind of power in the ancient, you know, in late antiquity, in the medieval world. So, um, of course, in biblical texts, in Old and New Testament, this kind of exousia, this power, is given to God. He's the only one who has this kind of authority over creation and everything else. And then following on this, the word also has this sense that, it's, that this kind of power or authority is active in relationships under the lordship of God. In other words, everyone is related somehow to this kind of authority. If God is the authority, then there are derived authorities that are relating to God's authority. So uh, God places people in positions of power, from Herod to Nero to Caesar to Pilate. You know, any human authority is a derived authority, if indeed God is the ultimate authority. And so this word kind of has this context then of an application in terms of human authorities, as well, there's this sense of this, that the authority of God is continuously exercised. This idea that it's not just a sort of a temporary policy, but it's this idea that, that, that God's authority, nothing falls from his view. That nothing is immune to God's authority. His authority is complete. He has the freedom and the capability to do whatever he wants, and he alone has that kind of power. So in the biggest sense of the world, uh, and, and the biggest sense of the word here, everyone and everything is beholden to someone else, and God alone has that authority. Now, the people don't recognize, just in using that word, they're not recognizing all of this at once. They're not equating Jesus with God necessarily, 
but they are shocked, they are surprised, they are astonished about the teaching of Jesus because it has this kind of depth to it. There's something that's very different about it, and the common people can recognize it, and it's amazing to them. Before he does any miracles, Jesus has gotten their attention because of the way that he teaches in his authority. And this, of course, becomes a great point of tension as the story goes on. The religious leader's complaint against Jesus is that he's taking their authority. And so they ask, why do you have this authority? And who do you think that you are that you can do this kind of stuff and that you don't have to point to other rabbis and that you can say these things? And Jesus, of course, responds about giving this authority, been giving this authority from his father. And, of course, that makes them say, well, who is your father? What do you mean? Is this Moses? Is this Abraham? You know, and all of those, those themes that will continue through the gospel is related to this idea of authority. And even in John 19 at the end, Pilate says, don't you know I have the authority over your life? And what does Jesus say? You would have no authority unless it was given to you from above. So Pilate thinks, you know, he has the authority, but Jesus, of course, knows better. Moving on to the story, verse 23. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Even as the crowd is marveling, this man begins to cry out, and immediately we have to kind of think for a minute about what do we believe about the influence of the supernatural world into our world? Do we believe, really, in angels and demons? Do we believe that they can be involved in the lives of of people? I mean, what does the Bible tell us? C.S. Lewis famously and helpfully reminded us of the two possible errors when we think about the existence of the devil, when we think about the influence of demons in our world, he wrote that one error is to look for demons everywhere, to see them under every rock or behind every bad event, to be sort of superstitious people who, are, who have that kind of idea that if something bad happens, it's got to be the fault of some kind of evil spirit or something. The other error is to pretend that they don't really exist at all and to live practically as materialists, completely ignoring the possibility of their potential influence. And we certainly, I think, can fall into both kinds of errors. As American Christians, I would submit to you perhaps our more common posture is to think that all of this angel and demon stuff is kind of far-fetched. I mean, it's really not easy for us to sort out the specifics The Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail, doesn't tell us that this is what demonic possession looks like, and so we can just like, you know, follow a chart to see it, or or this is what it looks like when an angel, uh, you know, comes to you. You know, it, it doesn't really spell those things out, and so I think we can be tempted to write it off, and and we're wary of those who would over spiritualize and sort of say that that uh, there's a supernatural cause you know, a specific supernatural cause that they can identify about everything good or bad that happens. But my encouragement for us to this morning is to take to heart what Jesus is doing here. This is an important thing in terms of his display of power and authority. Jesus cast out a lot of demons. We don't know exactly what to do with that always, 
But that is an important display of his power. It's a critical way that the gospel writers are showing us who he is. In this event, this demon, this evil spirit, begins to shout through the man. It's sort of confusing. What do you want with us? What are we to you? Uh, Have you come to destroy us? You know, I know who you are. It raises a lot of questions about what evil spirits know, what they think, what they're cognizant of, um, that more than we can kind of sort out this morning. Um, It seems strange, perhaps, that the demon is actually saying true things about Jesus, right? That he's the Holy One of God, that Jesus has come to destroy their power. Demons, of course, don't doubt the existence of God. They know it to be true. James 2.19 tells us that. They just, you know, rebel against it and as much as possible would refuse to obey him. But they know who Jesus really is. And then we get this follow-up question that we also don't have time for this morning, which is, why does Jesus forbid the demon to speak? And I think that that becomes a theme also in the Gospels, and maybe we can take it up a little bit more next week. Is he, sometimes when he... When he uh, casts out demons sometimes when he heals people. He says, don't, don't tell anyone what happened. Sometimes he asks people to, to spread the news. So uh, I hope that next week we'll explore that theme a little bit more. The climax of the narrative is that Jesus confronts the demon, then he shows that he has authority over it. Verse uh, 26, as we've read, the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Just by his word, Jesus commands, and the demon is forced to leave the man. It makes you wonder kind of what the history was of this. Had others tried to cast out this evil spirit? Had others been uh, struggled with difficulties with this Uh, man before and and couldn't help him. We don't really know. But the crowd is amazed. I mean, the the sign has had its function, right? That they're amazed that Jesus can do this with a word. And it's astonishing to them. And this was much more than a normal sort of synagogue Sabbath service than they were bargaining for, isn't it? As they see this display of power, though, the people have to ask the question, what is this? I mean, really, they were saying, what? what just happened? You know, what's going on? And then the question really is, who is this? And the news about Jesus spreads quickly throughout the area. What did the people see? They saw an amazing claim to authority. Anyone can point to anyone else's authority and make lots of claims. But Jesus taught in such a way that made an explicit claim about his authority. And then he proceeded to do something that validated his authority. Jesus put his money where his mouth was in that sense. People saw in that moment authority displayed in word and in deed together. The complete integrity of the message. The one who spoke the truth and who did things to prove that he really was the truth. And this exercise of Jesus' authority changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything. He puts all other powers in the right context by displaying his own power. And we need to reflect on this. We should consider a few things here. First, the what is this question is as relevant for us today as it was for those people. What's going on here? 
Who is this guy? What we've read this morning is a historical account. Now, critics would say that it's a myth or a legend or something, but there's a lot of evidence to say that this account is written, is reliable. It's written by people who were connected personally to these events, and it's, and it's connected to people who have staked their lives and been killed because of this message. So we can't ignore it. So the question hangs in the air. Who is Jesus? Mark is introducing him to us. How do we respond to him? How do we respond to his authority? Jesus said, so far this is the message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. Repent and believe the good news. And so I ask you this morning, is this what you've done? That's where it starts. The kingdom of God has come near in the person of Jesus. In this account, a man was freed from the oppression of an evil spirit. He's been saved and healed in such that the power of the devil doesn't hold him anymore. Jesus set him free. And that's the picture of what Jesus does. He sets people free from the power of sin and death. And of course, this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the best news of all. He does this freely He doesn't do this because of something that we've earned. He does this because of his grace. And he's showing that to us in this account this morning. Second, I think it's it's important that we see, that we really think about what it means that Jesus is more powerful than the evil spirits and the devil. Now, Now, if you would ask our children, you know, this sort of Sunday school answer, who is more powerful, Jesus or the devil, everyone knows the answer. Jesus has won the battle over the forces of evil. We can all affirm that. And yet the question I think that that interests us this morning is, how does this fact change our lives? How does this change what we believe and what we do from day to day? A couple thoughts here. First, it proves that we can trust his word. His authority extends to all that he said. And we have his words written down for us to read. And he proved the veracity, he proved the trustworthiness of his words because of what he's done in defeating Satan. Jesus' authority is a good thing for us, right? And he's given us his word. And sometimes we don't feel like that, perhaps. We wonder what God is doing when life is hard. And we have to walk by faith, and that means by definition that we have less information than we would like. As people who want to plan and control and organize things, we struggle sometimes when it feels like it's out of our grasp. We see the limits of our authority to our own dismay. And one solution is to remember Jesus' words and his promises. That he can be trusted to take care of us, to provide for us. That he is our authority. That he is the authority in this life and in the one that's to come. So we can trust in his word because of what he's done, because of what he said. And second, I think this account proves that we're safe. There's no power that's more powerful than Jesus. And he's turned his power towards his children in love. This world is not a safe place, but we are safe and we're secure in the deepest sense. 
There's an illusion that this world can be made safe, that we can do this by security systems and by side impact airbags and by insurance policies and by food labels, by bike helmets. But it can't be made safe except to say that Jesus has defeated all of his enemies. And it's illustrated right here just in this one story and proven many times over in the gospel accounts that Jesus offers safety to his people from our greatest threat. And he alone can provide that kind of safety. And we have safety that we can count on when we're anxious, when we're fearful, when we're overwhelmed by this life. Trust that Jesus really is more powerful than all of the threatening things that you face, than all of the threatening things that you feel. Trust that he's loving towards you, even in the midst of insecurity and fear and being overwhelmed. That's where we live, isn't it? This has to make sense for us in where we live. And this is where we live. We live in a feeling, the lack of safety. But Jesus is showing us that we're safe. In conclusion, the Bible teaches us that there's this war going on, right? We don't always think about it. It's rooted in the Garden of Eden, the serpent against the one who would come and strike his head. So here at the beginning, right as we first meet Jesus, we see the proof that the battle has already been won by him, that he has a new kind of authority to teach, and that he demonstrates his authority, the authority of his words, by what he does as he exercises power over evil and validates his message. This is good news for us today. It makes a huge difference, doesn't it, in our lives. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful this morning that you are powerful, that you are the power in the universe, that the world is not spinning out of control, uh, that our lives aren't spinning out of control. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you have demonstrated for your people uh, what it looks like that you have that kind of authority. Help us to submit to your authority. Help us to surrender to it. And help us to feel safe inside of it. To trust you, um, that you are, are good to us, and that you're in control. In the midst of life's uncertainties, Lord, we know that we need this message. And so we ask that you would root it deeply into our hearts, even this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.